This is a word fitly spoken by words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We hear the word fitly spoken and to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in his holy word. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi, here today to talk about apologetics. Zelwyn, how's it going? Going great. Been a really good day. Been getting a lot of stuff done, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. This is an important one that I think needs to to be talked about, especially in our circles today. Yeah, it is something that comes up a lot and is one of the more requested subjects. There's often inquiries by both pastors and laymen alike about defending the faith. How can we give a reasonable answer for the hope that is within us? That's a good goal for every Christian to have. And there are different ways of approaching it, different schools, and sometimes some very stark lines drawn between them. And yet, here we are trying to talk about all of them. Now, this is the first in a series of podcasts. In the future, we'll take a look at some of the more pressing apologetics questions. Today, we're going to look more at the history of apologetics, the schools, and then get a little bit into how biblical figures approach apologetics. So I think you'll enjoy, you know, hang along for the ride. It's an hour, you know, it won't hurt you. <laughs> yeah, and it's important to talk about the, the history and the, the differences between them, if only because there are so many different approaches to apologetics. It can seem kind of bewildering almost to think of the different ways that we can actually approach this subject, but it's not something that's meant to be scary or meant to only be for the professionals. It's something that, well, like you said, all Christians are called to do because we all have to give an answer. We all have to testify to the faith which we have, because we are called to confess before the world what it is that we actually believe. And apologetics has morphed over the years, similar to the way exegesis, for right or wrong, has morphed. Sometimes apologetics have been weakened as our view of the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture has been weakened. Some forms of apologetics rely more upon the Scriptures alone, while others exist almost solely outside of the scriptures and other arguments, or others use methods outside of exegesis, we'll say, for arguments too. So it's interesting to see how they develop, to what degree the historical context has played on certain schools of apologetics. I do think that certain schools are to be preferred over others. We'll see if we can deduce what that is in this podcast. (laughs) And yet they all do provide something valuable. I, I think we need to synthesize a little bit. Uh, when it comes to this? Well, if if only because having all of the approaches together means that we're able to address a variety of situations. Like you said, I don't think that we can say that they're all equal and, you know, and, and they're not all going to be, I almost hate to say appropriate, but, you know, different things for different times and understanding what's going on in any given situation will help us to be prepared because that is what we are called to do is to be prepared uh, through being in the word, and through knowing what it is that we might actually encounter in the world. Right. So that being said, let's go ahead and define apologetics. Apologetics comes from a Greek word, apologia. We tend to think of the word as meaning apology, like, you know, we say, like, I'm apologizing to someone, I'm saying I'm sorry. And that's not really what it means. An apologia is literally to make a speech in one's defense. Like in a legal situation where you have to get up and you're defending yourself against accusations. 
It's interesting because the word actually morphs into the way we use it. You know, if you're making excuses, you're you're excusing behavior, your your absence, for example, you're apologizing for the reason why you weren't there. You're making a defense, but it's not like you said. We're not saying we're sorry to non-Christians or even to other Christians. We are defending. We are saying this. It is exactly what we believe. Do you believe that apologetics is required of all Christians? Absolutely. Are we not called to bear witness before the world? And if we are called to bear witness before the world, we are going to have to defend against the accusations of the world because the world's not going to say, at least the world not in its sinful state is not going to say, oh, that's nice. It's going to attack because it wants nothing to do with the gospel. So yes, we have to be ready. Yeah, that's the big why. You know, why are we doing this? To defend the faith against the attacks of the world. Now, when we talk about this as an obligation, we don't mean it to be as burdensome as it sounds or, or, or those sorts of things, because, you know, everybody has this ability to defend the faith to a greater or lesser degree. Part of its nature, but also you'll be able to better defend your faith the more you know your faith, the more you know your God. And how do we then come to know him? Well, through his means and chiefly through his word. If you're not frequenting the divine service, you're not going to understand a lot of these things. If you're not frequently reading the scriptures, you're not going to be able to give a good defense. You can't defend something that you don't know, really. And when we see this all the time on like these, these debates we see with the talking heads on the news, for example, and two of them are just talking over each other, but none of them has any idea what they're really talking about. You know, the level of discourse really just becomes whoever is the loudest, I guess, is the right one. And that's not really what we're going for there. And you do see a level of that in Christianity and in some of the debates, unfortunately. You know, whoever shouts the loudest or whoever insults their opponent, whoever gives the the wickedest burn, as you would say, you know, must be correct. And, And that's not really true. And so we have to think about that. It is very much a discipline. Apologetics is a discipline. Well, and and like I said a little bit earlier, too, it's not something that is just meant for the professionals. You know, there is you can be very well educated in the the methods of apologetics and the skill sets that go along with it and able to teach others even. But that's not what we're looking for when it comes to, say, your average Christian. The Christian is called to defend the faith and to be faithful in that witness which they are bearing. That doesn't mean that they're going to have a method that's going to be like, if I just use this method, then the other person has to admit that I'm right, and they have to start believing. But I think that's where some of the frustration comes, is that a lot of people do see it that way. I'm making this perfectly reasonable argument, and and, and indeed, a Christian can be making a perfectly truthful and reasonable argument, and then the opponent still rejects it because, you know, the old Adam, all of that, you know, the the person's <laughs> sin working against him, he can't believe. So there is that level of discouragement that happens, and we have to be careful with that. In this world, you're not going to see too many people perfectly realize every aspect of the Christian faith. And, sure. and, and so if you're looking for that, or if you're thinking that through your eloquence, reason, knowledge, whatever, you're going to use, you know, rhetoric to get someone in the faith, that's not necessarily going to happen. Mm-hmm. So don't set yourself up for disappointment in that way. But then that's the question. Okay, if someone can't do it, or if someone can isn't going to be persuaded by my arguments necessarily, then why do it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, well, one, we're called to, and B, 
apologetics done rightly is a form of preaching and proclaiming the word. Now, that doesn't mean like, and I'm not talking about like, I'm not saying that talking about the dates of rock layers, you know, with regard to the flood or the age of the earth is is preaching the gospel. But there are forms of apologetics where you are really contending for the truth of God and who he is and the truth concerning the sinfulness of man and what is required to pay the price for man's sins, that sort of thing. So really, the proclamation of the gospel in the broad sense and apologetics at times do cross. No, absolutely they do. And I think I think maybe the best way to look at it is we're not arguing for the sake of arguing, which is kind of what you were saying. We're actually bringing that person into a direct confrontation with Christ to really present to them clearly and as well as we are able with what it is that the Bible says about them and about their state. Because only when we bring them to that state, that that preaching of the law, followed by the preaching of the gospel, is the Holy Spirit going to be able to convert. It's not about, like you said, it's not about laying out some airtight case using physical evidences that, you know, you just have to accept it without ever getting around to actually talking about Jesus. No, apologetics should be unapologetically about Jesus in the, in the, the long run. We understand attacks from the world, but we also have to defend from attacks within the church itself. And, and we've seen this, I mean, essentially, the point of the church councils are apologetic in nature, mm-hmm. to attempt to defend and certainly define the truth here. So what would be an example from within the church of an attack? Well, I suppose you could have the, the most blatant ones would be those who claim to be a part of the church, but ultimately reject some key doctrine. And I suppose the, the ones that usually come to mind are people who deny some aspect about Christ, whether it is that he's God, you know, or that he's man, and they say, no, that's not true. And so the church has said, no, we have to defend ourselves from the scriptures against these things. And those those ones are easy to see because, well, we've had this for, what, hundreds of years that we've that this argument's been going on, or at least the answer has been given. The ones that are a little less easy to deal with, I I suppose, are the ones that are a little bit closer together, contending for what it is that the Bible actually says, kind of the more... Subtle errors, would you say? Subtle errors, yeah. People who are bringing in things that sound really good and ultimately are poison. Yeah, the big egregious errors are so obvious, but often these subtle ones... The people preaching these subtle errors sound a lot more like the gar- the snake in the garden than they do Arius or somebody like that. It's always mm-hmm. one of these hath God indeed said kind of things. Oh, you should not surely die. These equivocators that we have to deal with. And I suppose we've had equivocators from the beginning in the church, but with the way mm-hmm. discourse happens today, we see it all the time, all the mm-hmm. time. And I keep returning to the actually meme here, but it's very true. It's just another <laughs> form of equivocating and equivocators. And we don't need that in the church. We don't need the confusion sown. Now, men do that. They sow confusion, possibly not meaning to. But it does sound awfully big brain to be like, oh, well, really, we've just been redefined. We, we've been defining this wrong, or your understanding is deficient. Let me show you a better, more complex, and less clear way. And, <laughs> and unfortunately, people fall for that. It's, it's another form of the loudest guy. Okay, there's the loudest guy, and there's the most verbose guy. Mm-hmm. And, and they're cousins, 
you know. So there's Loudie McGee over here, and then there's Johnny Thesaurus over here, and and they both are just really trying to impress you with some with something of no substance. And these people are in the church, and we have to we have to mark and avoid them. But for, before we can do that, we have to be able to identify them. And apologetics enables you to do this because a good apologetical foundation enables you to detect error really rather quickly. Yeah, so the the truth of the matter is is that the best way to do apologetics, which is what you said earlier too, is to just be in your Bible. Yeah. There's really no two ways around this. I mean, we're not you the the books that talk about this or you know that talk about specific methods, they're helpful, but they really are no substitute for just having a thorough grounding in the word. Because when you know God's word, you will have your answer. And it's knowing it, but it's it's believing that it is true over and above everything else. And we'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about the schools, but you know, there's this temptation to rely on arguments that seem clever. Or arguments as they were originally formulated were pretty good or trying to say one thing, but then we apply them too, too broadly. For example, mm-hmm. like uh, one would be C.S. Lewis's, he's either lunatic, liar, or lord. I saw this all the time in college, you know, guys trotting this out like, see, so what is it, huh, militant atheist? He can't be all three. And they go, yeah, okay, he's a liar then. I mean, it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't actually prove anything. That that argument is not really helpful as far as apologetics go. And no offense to people who, who like it. The, the point of that argument is that Jesus claims to be one thing, and that is Lord. That's what he portrays himself as throughout the scriptures. That's the point. It's saying that Jesus does not present himself in another way. It's not in any shape, form, or fashion to be construed as an argument for the validity of his claims, because it isn't. Because you've got those three options, and and a non-believer is going to pick option A or B. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, that, but that's and see that's the thing we've kind of tried to reduce this to sort of pithy, pithy kind of things, and really, the apologetic task is is more than that, and it really does mean that you have to say to assert truths. So there has to be mm-hmm. a foundational truth. We can't give in to the temptation so common in our culture of of looking for the the mic drop. Right. Because that's that's just not how it works. Right. And at the heart of this all is that not all truth claims are equal. Yeah. Well, that's and that's and that's something that we have to contend with even in our own culture, of course. You know, people tend to think that all truth claims are equal that it doesn't if I say one thing, you say another thing and we can just kind of agree to disagree or it just it's all true in some vague sense, but in reality there is only one truth. And the Christian truth is not one option among many, okay? I think that's sometimes where we get into a trap as well, where we present apologetics as if, like, you know, try Christianity. It's really going to help you, you know. It's really going to make everything go a lot better for you. Yeah. No, that's not what it means to defend the faith. Yeah, the the sort of my experiential, you know, approach to Christianity has led to an idea of my truth. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of independently, the world has said that, well, you have your truth and they have their truth and there are many truths. Well, no, there isn't. And you might find that out one day the hard way. God forbid. God forbid. And we don't want that. But a Christian's doing nobody any favors. You know, you don't want to be, there's an arrogant way to go about that t- too. 
But at the same time, you're being disingenuous and you're not being loyal to your God by saying, well, they have this truth or, or, or their truth. You know, we, we do this all the time when we talk about cultures and, and everything else. We, we want to put everything on an even playing field. And it, and it really isn't. It really isn't. If you have a culture that is filled with mass murderers, rapists and cannibals, quite frankly, that's not on an equal playing field with other cultures who don't who don't murder and pillage and that sort of thing. Controversial opinion of the day. But but we've gotten to that point where you can't look at something and say this is objectively bad or this is objectively wrong. And so that's what we've had with ideas, because we don't seem to think that ideas have consequences. But now we're living in an age where even actions don't seem to have consequences. It's just it's just it's just an accident. If this culture here, if they're eating each other and 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 you know, sacrificing humans to the volcano god, well Hey, that's just the way they do things. Who am I to judge? You know, the, yeah. the, the Christian message actually goes out and says, <laughs> no, you have to repent. You have to stop this. You have to stop the killing. You have to hmm. you have to turn from your ways. But first, you must see God for who he is. And only hmm. when you see God for who he is, as he has revealed himself, will you turn, uh, will you be illuminated and be able to turn to his truth, the only truth that matters, to the truth. And I suppose that's my point. There is no my truth or your truth. There is only one truth, the truth of the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, man. Yeah. And and maybe maybe it's something to, to add on to that as well, then, is that, well, I mean, to use a biblical verse coming from Romans, you know, God overlooks their former ignorance, but now he calls all nations to repent. So we can't look at the the nations and say, this nation over here, just this is just the way they do things. You know, they, they sacrifice babies to the volcano god like you said and so who am i to judge well no that's not i mean they do stand before god and not just a god either but god the holy trinity is the only one who is all men must answer to him so we're not even presenting like i said we're not presenting one option like you know this is just a better explanation of who god is no there is only one god there is only one truth and we are called as christians to bear witness to that truth. Right, and every thought will be held captive or must be held captive. That's the thing. We are talking about objective truth and value judgments here. Make no mistake, because the Bible calls us to do that. And it isn't hateful or anything like that. It's the it's the most loving thing that we can do. We tend to think of our interactions in terms of, of merely our interactions with people, but we also have to think about our interactions with God and what that means. And God is our master when he is being mocked or lied about. If if he is truly our loving father, why would we not rush to defend him? There's a lot to be said about honor and apologetics. There's a lot to be said about honor and culture today, which we, we seem to lack. But honor would dictate that when our father is wronged, that we seek to rectify that. Mm-hmm. And of course, in what way is God most often aggrieved but by blasphemy? Mm-hmm. To make false assertions about God is nothing short of blasphemy, and that really is the root of blasphemy. It's not only saying bad things about him, it's, it's, it's portraying him falsely. And, and we, need to, we need to be mindful of that. You know, if I want, We're coming up to the end of the segment, and here I'm being all thunderous here. <laughs> but it is the truth. I mean, and, and I don't want you to think of it as, as just like, well, you're not defending you know, these people. But the idea is that 
God has loved you so much. And, and when every thought is captive to Christ, you love Christ to Christ our God. And that love causes us to stand up and to boldly proclaim the truth about him, but also to defend him out of love for him as our God and Lord, but also out of love for neighbor. Again, as we go back to something we say often in nearly every episode, we don't seek to be right just to be right. We seek to preach the truth so that others may come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And with that, we have to take a break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org And we're back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi talking Christian apologetics. Obviously talking about Christian apologetics because we are Christian. If you want Islamic or Jewish apologetics, please go elsewhere. But before you do that, (laughs) sit here and listen to what we have to say. So we want to take a look now at a few schools. Now, we're going to talk about three main schools of apologetics. We are not going to talk about all the schools because that would be impossible in an hour-long podcast. But we're going to talk about three, arguably the three biggest schools, the classical approach, the evidentialist approach, and the presuppositional approach. Now, every one of these has their rabid fanboys. Every one of these have Christians of good repute who use them almost exclusively. And so we're just going to talk about them, see how they approach this, how they approach their defense of the faith. See if we can glean anything positive from each of them, if possible. Where should we start, Zelman? Let's start with the oldest one, I guess, the classical school. Yeah, I mean, it's called classical for a reason. So, right. uh, <laughs> uh, The classical school, or sometimes called the philosophical school of apologetics, basically approaches the questions of, of that come up in apologetics primarily in terms of reason and logic. They're not so much interested, and I'm trying to be you know, very charitable here, uh, they're not so much interested in making scriptural arguments first. Very often, these kinds of people who use this approach will begin somewhere before the Bible and kind of work up to it, and then they will start talking about what it is that the Bible has to say. But their overriding concern is that the Christian message is an extremely how would you put it? Logical one? Yeah, yeah, extremely logical that it's, it's like, basically it's, you see how all of these things are in nature. Or logically, you can see how they can be, how the world can work in no other way but this. Therefore, it's that sort of thing. Like, this is how the universe fits together. And they start from outside the Bible and sort of work their way towards it. Now, there are going to presuppose, you know, a Christian, a Christian cosmology, for example you know, for the most part, but they're going to argue from outside, you know, scriptural arguments. 
for all intents and purposes. Uh, some of the the most important advocates, well, historically, of course, uh, the most some of the more famous ones would be like Saint Anselm, who is is well known for formulating what is sometimes called the uh, ontological argument. <laughs> and how would you put it into this, a simple form, Willie? Uh, the, ontological throw the ontological argument. Well, just go to you know, it's just like saying Platonism. You know, it's a word everybody likes to throw that around, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, everybody brings up the ontological argument either to refute it or to, you know, well, actually, it yeah, or to... it's, it's, it's the argument of from being. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's Anselm say? That then which nothing greater can be thought will be, yeah. will be God. So, so that we exist and that, that we are is how we would begin to approach our defense of the existence of God. Uh, we, we can go, we can go into Anselm's points if you want, but. No, that we don't have yeah. to. I would say, incidentally, this is also where Descartes, in his famous "I think, therefore I am," makes his step. After yeah. beginning with himself, he immediately then says, "Well, if I exist, therefore there must be the greatest that exists, which is God." So he kind of yeah. <laughs> short shortcuts real quick after making that argument, and that's how he begins to to ph- philosophize. Yeah, and basically, it's just saying if what we see is true, mm-hmm. then. From that, we can have all these arguments of why God must exist. Yeah. And and so, so yeah, so this is the way, obviously, you're observing reality. So this is, from that, we're going to argue from that. Now, I don't think that that goes as far today as it did in times past. No, not really. Yeah, because you can't, people don't even presuppose the same physical reality, let alone spiritual reality. Well, especially in the wake of Immanuel Kant, who makes a, a very who kind of upends some of these things. And then you get guys like Russell who comes in and argues against it. So philosophers have had a lot of time to wrestle with of these kinds of arguments. And therefore yeah. they're, they're very often brought up and, and argued against. Yeah. So, well, the ontological argument is, is tricky too, because if you're arguing from being not just being as a state of man, but being as the reality that surrounds us, right. The, the thing that is, you know what really puts a ripple in all this is the '60s, and even before that. <laughs> when you when you look at, there's a lot more dialogue about psychedelics and stuff these days. So that's why I mentioned the '60s. But even back in the '30s, and you had this, you had um, psychedelics being used, you know, by Indians, you know, years ago, years ago. <laughs> okay, there's a point to this. The point is, you've got these guys now who will take DMT or something and then it will alter allegedly alter their consciousness for some time and then they will be awoken to some individual theory of actually how to perceive reality right so and i forget the guy's name who first experiments with this but you know the guy who came up with the idea of the fractal elves i take this mind-altering substance and the fractal elves come and reveal these things to me through this hallucinogenic experience we are getting far we are way off our field but my point is this (laughs) Now you've got this idea that you can alter your brain's chemistry and then have this revelation, which, you know, goes against every agreed upon and understood notion of physics or reality. So in the modernist period, when people could presuppose that we agreed upon certain laws of physics and laws of nature, right? Mm -hmm. Then the ontological argument would be much more persuasive. But Mm -hmm. now when you go, no, 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 man, you're wrong. The world, man, I took, you know, I took this chemical and the world's actually all one. We're all the same matter vibrating at different frequencies, you see. So 
we're all the same. Like, what? And then you got to break down. At that point, the classical school doesn't have too much to offer, or at least the ontological argument. And I'm actually, I'm quoting real, real people. So, yeah, I know. and then and then you get in your chartreuse minibus and drive off. So, <laughs> right, right. But so we just maybe so that we don't spend all of our time on this too. The other main proponent of the philosophical apologetics is Thomas Aquinas, and yes. he's famous for formulating what is sometimes called the five ways. Yes, my patron, my patron saint. And we talked about this when we were pre-gaming this. Do we want to talk about the five ways? And we said no, but now I kind of want to do. So, <laughs> well, briefly, 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 yeah. briefly. So basically, Aquinas is going to, you know, the the the, the quinque vie. Uh, he's going to say. Here are five logical arguments regarding the existence of God. One, the argument from motion, the argument of the unmoved mover. Two, the argument of causation. There has to be some first instrumental cause. Three, the argument of contingency, which we actually talked a bit about in the episode on when we talked about providence. It's argument from contingency, the argument from degree, and then finally, the teleological argument or the, the argument from the final cause or ends. Now, I wish I could say you could pick up a pretty quick reader and just get a good summary of these of these five, but uh, concise and Aquinas don't really go that well together. I mean, there's the shorter <laughs> summa, but it's not that short. It's only relatively short. But that's this. But this is the same idea. Okay, something had to set this in motion. Okay, now that they're in motion, something has to govern them, lest you know we go into in, into chaos or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, something has to cause this, uh, and then of course you know the the teleological argument, which is actually kind of part of the ontological argument or related to it closely. So, I mean, I guess you know, the, the, theology meaning finality, why something exists or what the end goal is. So it, it's, it's actually defining existence based upon if something exists, it must have a purpose, an end or a goal. So that's how it's related to that. Well, I think, I think it's worth pointing out there too, that all this talk of ends and means and movers and stuff like that, really emphasizes the the heavy debt that this approach owes to Greek thought, especially Aristotle. Yeah, I think that's fair. Not I mean and that that's it just it is what it is. I mean that I'm not yeah. saying good or bad. I'm just saying yeah, that's what it does. And so yeah, so it, it borrows very heavily from these these ways of thinking and well baptizes it. I don't want to call it pagan thinking. It is Christian thinking even if it is heavily influenced by the Greeks. But it, that's what it's trying to do, is to use this way of thinking to approach these questions and to ultimately lead somebody to God. So if we're talking about contemporary classical apologists, who, who would be some examples? Uh, the, the one that I can think of off the top of my head would be William Lane Craig. Yeah. I, I don't actually, I'm not terribly familiar with his stuff. Do you have anything you want to uh, add not to that? Really Craig, you know, he's just kind of notable. You've got Norm Geisler, Arminian dude. I think Norman Geisler is Arminian because he had those debates with James White, right? Um, and okay. then and then I think another noticeable one would be, or notable one would be R.C. Sproul. Sure. Sproul, it's interesting because with all the people that Sproul hung out with, you thought he would belong to another school that we're going to talk about. But nevertheless, he belonged, his, he belonged to an independent Presbyterian church and didn't really have a problem with images. So as far as Calvinists <laughs> went, he was kind of hard to figure out in those ways. <laughs> but yeah, so R.C. Sproul would be, would be another one. And really, if you want an, ex, you know, an accessible guy today to sort of see how this approach works, looking at the late R.C. Sproul's apologetics books would, would really kind of give a good 
lay-level introduction to classical apologetics, in my opinion. Sure. And he's got tons and tons of books. He was very prolific. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So the next school then we're going to talk about, and maybe the most common one that you see today, just in Mm -hmm. popular Christian media, would be Mm -hmm. evidentialism. So you want to give us a quick, quick definition of evidentialism? Evidentialism begins with the assumption that there is a kind of neutral ground that the unbeliever and the believer can approach. And in this neutral ground are a bunch of evidences that point towards the, 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 they would say, the truth of the Christian religion. That's a really, I'm trying to, to give the best explanation when I can. Maybe it would be easier to show just kind of how it works, because then you can kind of see what it's doing. You have, for example, the idea that if we just take all of the stuff around the Bible, like the history around the Bible, or or maybe even this idea that, well, I'm trying to think of one of the more famous arguments, that the, the apostles wouldn't lie for what, uh, and then still willingly die. That's an evidentialist argument. And so they knew the truth that there was a dead man who rose again, and so they they come in and they they proclaim the truth. Or this idea that the New Testament is reliable because it has the most manuscripts out of all ancient documents. That's an evidentialist argument. Okay, so it's this idea that we take these little evidences, these little bits of data, and we put them all together. And when you put them all together, the logical conclusion or the the driving force behind them will point towards the truth of the scriptures. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. It tends to get associated a lot with these sort of scientific arguments, trying to prove what the Bible says. Too, there's that mm-hmm. side of it as well. And really, you know, this, again, kind of presupposes a sort of physics-based world that we can all agree on. So everything I said about the machine elves 10 minutes ago that sounded really weird kind of applies to this, too. (laughs) Um, It's really hard to find that neutral ground more and more when it comes to that. You know, so you have things like Christian science, or not Christian science is a religion, but Christians who practice the discipline of science, for example, using that to prove the validity of the biblical account of things like the flood or, you know, most commonly creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mm-hmm. don't have a lot of people trying to scientifically prove the resurrection, miracles and whatnot, but you do have the evidentialist approach applied kind of in the courtroom way. Like you would, like you were saying with, you know, would the, would the apostles lie or would the early disciples lie for something or die for something that wasn't true? So you could take something like, would you say Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ is a pretty good example of the evidentialist approach? That's easily the most popular. Well, and, and McDowell, Josh McDowell, uh, Evidence that Demands a Verdict. Or Evidence that Demands a Verdict, yeah. Um, is, is also, I mean, evidence. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This idea that, I mean, the, the, the really the way they're approaching it is if someone were to be impartial and to lay out the case for both, the Christian one is going to win. Okay. That's kind of how it's, it's it's so that you do get these in Lutheran circles. You have Montgomery and Craig Parton, I think as, as, as known in our circles as well, yeah. uh, who, who present this uh, Parton's book, religion on trial is a very good example of this approach, kind of putting all the evidences together, building up finally to the truth of the scriptures. Yeah. And I, I think that, evidentialism is very good for the believer 
I'm not, absolutely. You know, I, I'm not convinced. You know that it, that it is the strongest as far as you know convincing those outside the faith, but it is very good for those within the faith and answering their question, sure. because these sure. people will have sincere faith, but yet they're bombarded by these objections. You know about creation or the flood or or the resurrection. You know from all these forces outside of them. So evidentialism is very beneficial in, in that uh, scenario. Are we, are we actually picking sides? Okay. No, no, I'm not picking sides. I'm just saying that, that I think that it 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 does. I think it does a lot more for the believer than we give it credit for. I I think that's fair because when we're dealing with evidences, especially evidences that sh- uh, tend to confirm the truth of the scriptures, it is beneficial for the believer because the believer is already he's already in the position that he's going to accept them, which is kind of what you were saying. The, the unbeliever, unfortunately, is going to see these things and because of the reality of sin, is not going to approach them in a neutral way, right. which is really the, the great criticism of an evidentialist approach. That doesn't mean that evidentialists aren't, you know, they are doing good things. Someone who is an evidentialist is not somehow less of a Christian uh, by any means. That's not what we're saying. It's just that there are difficulties with the method. Right. And so with all this talk about neutral neutrality and such, let's move on to the third school we're going to discuss in the last few minutes of this segment, the presuppositionalist school. Presuppositionalism is the idea that, well, frankly, and this is why I defined evidentialist the way that I did. Presuppositionalism is the idea that there is no such thing as a neutral ground. That the unbeliever is always going to approach the truths of reality and color them through his presuppositions. Like looking through rose-tinted glasses, everything is going to look rosy, right? Or the idea that if I have a saw that cuts just a little bit off, it's always going to skew and not get everything quite right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it's it's like the, the child who is afraid of ghosts. And then mm-hmm. every, at night, every shadow, every like flicker of the fire, everything becomes a ghost to him. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. in his mind, he sort of created this idea. And that's the thing. Everybody has a worldview of some kind. And everybody's is colored by something. It might not be colored by some sort of intellectual conversion they've had. Our worldviews are colored by things that are far beyond our control as well. You know, if you're mm-hmm. born in one part of the world, you're going to under, you're going to perceive things differently than someone in another part of the world. And so even at the base, we have to at least acknowledge that that is true about presuppositionalism, that that, that nobody's really coming and standing on neutral ground. Because mm-hmm. even perception mm-hmm. is different. Not just what you confess, but even the way you're perceiving the data is going to be different, just based mm-hmm. upon an infinite number of variables. Mm-hmm. So then if I'm, so for the presuppositionalist, if I can only perceive things through this given set of parameters and this person can only perceive things this way, then where do we find the truth? And that will Mm -hmm. be where the presuppositionalist begins. Yes. Yes. So we're not locked in a hopeless circle of saying, well, you have your worldview. I have my worldview. That's not what presuppositionalism is. In fact, we argued against that earlier in this section or early in this, in this podcast, presuppositionally would say the presuppositions of the unbeliever 
are always colored by sin. And he does not see the truth, which is right in front of him, which has been revealed clearly to him in creation. And this is going directly from Romans chapter one. Uh, God has revealed himself perfectly and so that all are without excuse. The unbeliever is really just trying to suppress what he knows better. Well, and that's the thing. That's where presuppositionalism starts. It starts with that what God has revealed, not in nature, mm-hmm. but in his special revelation. Now, in that instance, yeah, it's what God has revealed in special revelation about natural revelation. But it begins mm-hmm. with the Bible is true. So that's why it's called presuppositionalism. It's, it presupposes this set of parameters mm-hmm. or this set mm-hmm. of truths, uh, better said. Oh, even even so much to the point where it's not it's not like we just we just accept this on faith or something like that. A presuppositionalist is going to say the world does not make sense apart from the revelation of God. Right. Period. You can't explain anything without this. Without God. Yeah. So it's it's not even the the idea that we're just presenting like God in the abstract without the Trinity the world does not make sense. And the unbeliever actually borrows certain presuppositions in order to have a semi-coherent worldview. And so who would be some notable presuppositionalists? Well, the the most notable, because he's kind of, I don't know, would you call him the father? I don't know if you can call him. I think it's fair to call him the father. Is Cornelius Van Til. He was a reformed theologian who died in last century. I don't remember what year. Hasn't been all that long ago. No, no, there's his students are still alive. You know, men who sit under him are older baby boomers. Yep, yep, yeah. So not it's it's one of the newest schools, but I think it's very influential, even though it borrows from a lot of other things too. But Cornelius Van Til formulated it and really got it going. And then Greg Bonson, I think, is the the most popular of of the ones that I know. Of course, yeah. we could get into the <laughs> We could get into the various subdivisions within presuppositionalism, but I think that's... Yeah, I mean, you, you, you'll have notable guys who are influenced. I mean, Gordon Clark's going to be one, but you're going to have notable guys who are influenced by Van Til. Even R.C. Sproul, who we mentioned, is really belonging to the classical school, is still very much mm-hmm. influenced by if not Clark, if not Van Til, in a number of sure. ways. And, and Francis Schaeffer, you know, we, we sure. really have to keep Francis Schaeffer sort of at least floating around of that school. I mean, he's, he's absolutely influenced by it if he doesn't absolutely totally, uh, espouse it. So it's, it's not the most well-known, or at least it wasn't in times past. I think it's really starting to become more popular. It's associated almost exclusively with Calvinists, although you do find exceptions to that. Uh, there are reasons mm-hmm. why it would have to spring from Reformed theology as a system, mm-hmm. but that's neither mm-hmm. here nor there. And yet it too is very beneficial. It has its its positives. And namely, it does, you know, recognize, you know, the world kind of as it is, as hostile to the Christian perception of reality. And one thing I find very beneficial about that approach too is its unrelenting focus on being in the word. Right. It it be- it begins in the word, it tries to end, you know, to stay in the word and to really emphasize that proclamation. So and that's where its critics would say, well, that's where it's deficient, because that's not going to matter to someone who doesn't believe the Bible. And but that can be said of any of these schools. None mm-hmm. of their arguments, you know, are really going to people who don't take them seriously or their worldview seriously. Nobody's nobody's going to take them seriously. Classical, 
evidential is presuppositional. That's where the presuppositionalist calls a spade a spade and says, yeah, you're right. They hate us. They don't, or they don't, or not just that, but they don't believe what we believe. So we have to stand on this and stay within this parameter, namely stay within the word and argue upon the basis of that as it's been revealed perfectly to us. And so that's, that's where the presuppositionalist is coming from, you know, best construction on everything, explaining everything in the kindest way. <laughs> we'll, yeah, exactly. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. A word fitly spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all his fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. And we're back. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi, sort of talking about Christian apologetics. You never really know where the rabbit hole is going to take you, Alice. But here we are right back. So we've talked about three main schools of apologetics, the classical, evidential, and the presuppositional approach to apologetics. What we want to do with this last segment, or most of this last segment, is take a look at a biblical example of apologetics and see how Paul, specifically, how St. Paul defends the faith or makes an argument for the faith in the Bible. And we have this in the book of Acts in chapter 17. Zelwyn, you want to pick up with that? Sure. I'll just read a little bit and then maybe we can react to it. So Acts 17, starting at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. That's a pretty interesting way of starting things. Paul seems to be approaching from a very, well, I suppose you could call it a common ground, right? Yeah, you could. Yeah, and and he's going to do a little bit of both. You know, he's saying, "Okay, this is what you have. This is what we have," but then he's going to say he has something that they don't. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, I mean, but yeah, I would say it's a common ground. At least you know, and we're going to see that a little more. At least insofar as saying, "Hey, I see what you have." Mm-hmm. Okay, and then it would be basically we acknowledge this part of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in general, I would agree. He's sort of he's sort of coming at them as neutral as he can. It's really rather clever. Well, and if if nothing else, if you want to still argue that he's saying that there is no common ground, he's at least rhetorically saying that there that's, is. That's yeah, that, that that's yeah, absolutely. He's he's using it as a rhetorical device. Mhm. So he's not I I think I mean, I don't think we want to say that he's saying like, well, I mean, he very clearly says that what they're doing is not god-pleasing, obviously. It's worshiping god as unknown is not in the sense of worshiping God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, they are still in idolatry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's certainly not saying that Jehovah is one God among the pantheon, that they just haven't, right. you know, met him yet. 
<laughs> they just don't know his name. And therefore, when they figure out his name, then they'll chisel it out. And then, you know, then they'll have his name on there. No, it's just his way of saying that you have a longing of looking for God. Which is true because man is man is created to worship the Lord. Yeah. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And and because he is created to worship, because he is created to be in this, well, I mean, for the lack of a better word, although I know sometimes we don't like it, a relationship with God, a relationship of of the creature to his creator, not just like buddy buddy, but looking for toward our father, because that is our relationship to God, yes, it is natural to seek after, to do what is our, I don't help me out here. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, there's a, there's a relational aspect to this that they are missing. And mm-hmm. then namely with, with this, they don't even know. They don't even know what this idol they've erected or this, you know, monument they've erected is to. Mm-hmm. Hesitate to call it an idol because of the line that Paul's going to take, but you know what I'm saying here. No, I, I I know exactly what you mean. And then the the point there too being that they even though they're looking for to fulfill what their their purpose, their nature, which is to worship God, yet they have suppressed this truth. Because we can't ignore what Paul says in Romans one. The reason why they don't know him here is because if they did know him, they would recognize know him in a saving way they would recognize their guilt, which is exactly what they're right. not. And, yeah, and that's the you know the point we go, we go back to often is that nobody is on the last day going to be able to say, well, we didn't know you. Mm-hmm. It's more going to be a question of in what way did they know God? Mm-hmm. Because he's revealed himself. There is natural revelation in that way. But natural revelation doesn't serve to save. Natural revelation only serves to condemn. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in the case where there is no law, they become a law unto themselves, and then what happens? They even transgress that law. Mm-hmm. You know, when we see things like, you know, they become, a, you know, they have their own righteousness and that sort of thing. It's not saying that they have attained righteousness. The point is they have their own standard for justice that springs from this natural revelation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's very, you know, we need to be, we need to be very clear with that, that it's not saying that, that they've sort of created their own standards and then lived by them and they're okay. The point is, even pagans have this sense of the Decalogue and mm-hmm. even the pagans knowing right from wrong still break the law. Even, even to the point where I think we can say very clearly, if all men have broken the law, they at least know enough of the law to be a lawbreaker. What I mean by that is that everyone is without excuse. And that is something we have to bring out again and again and again with the apologetic text. Everyone is without excuse because they know what it is that God has revealed, but they choose to ignore it. Now, with Paul here, this situation is going to be interesting because of his quotations. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you think that's going to be problematic for us? What do you make of that? Well, should we? Should we? Do you want to keep reading a little bit, or do you want yeah, to go right to the quotations? No, well, let's keep reading a little bit. We'll get there. That's, I'm okay. getting too excited. Sometimes I want to jump. You're excited about the Greeks. I know it's okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Starting at verse twenty-four. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God 
and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. I'll just stop there. So Paul is, again, he's, he's beginning with this recognition that, and in terms of apologetics, that they stand in this relationship to God as creatures, and therefore they owe something to him. Okay? Because God created everything, everything must answer to him. And he's not served by human hands in the sense of like this unknown altar is somehow serving him. Not even the temple itself, which he commanded to be built, is is doing that. Because he doesn't need anything, but he gives to us life and breath and everything, and therefore we owe much to him. And I think that's an important apologetic point, don't you think? Yeah. And where do you think that Paul gets this approach? Because he's actually coming and asserting truth claims. Do you think he's built this up from a natural argument, or do you think this was part of his Jewish catechism or catechesis? That's that's a good question. I don't think we want to think of Paul as like arguing somehow in a in a, like a purely rationalistic sense, right? Or something right. Yeah, like and I know. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit an- anachronistic to think of it in, the, in those terms. I, I do think yeah. it's, it's 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 significant that he's a Pharisee. Sure. And when we understand how Pharisees viewed things like providence this very strong view. I mean, views that wouldn't be entirely foreign to us here at a word fitly spoken, but, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that there's some, that there's something informing him here. Sure. Well, you know, when Paul becomes a Christian, there was much that he would have gladly retained right from his upbringing in Judaism. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you know, he's, he's pre Talmud, you know, those sorts of things. So he doesn't have all of that baggage. But he's raised in this certain school with these certain philosophical understandings. And I don't think it's it's correct to say that he abandons everything because there is much good to be retained. I mean, you spend your life in the scriptures, there's obviously a lot of good retained there. And so I wish I knew more about second century Jewish rhetoric. You know, I don't wanna I don't wanna start like waxing, you know, too poetically about it or anything. I mean, there's been some <laughs> some research and some reading, but I just find it an interesting discussion of what would young Paul's formation have been like and what sure. would then his rhetoric have looked like here. I mean, and we can know that. That's something that we're able to study and to know, just not on tonight's podcast or this podcast, I should say. We shouldn't put time markers on it. I don't know when you're listening to this. Fair enough. <laughs> but, well, and I, I think I think it's worth pointing out, too. This is a fairly, I mean, like you say, a fairly philosophical argument. He is beginning with certain assumptions about his audience. Yeah, and you know and, and you know I I think he has to understand the I mean obviously he has some knowledge of the Greeks here. Sure. And and so so he knows them well, you know, and then somebody's going to come out and say, "See, aha, Paul was influenced by Greek thinking and therefore he's not to be trusted." Actual <laughs> arguments by supposed theologians, folks. Yeah. Yeah. And so we we bump into all kinds of things here, but it's just it's tremendously interesting. And it does tell you a little bit about the exchange of ideas. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and how the Greeks are going to receive him? You know, when he comes and asserts truths like this in the synagogue, what happens? Well, well, they they reject him. Yeah, I mean, he gets followers too, but for the most part, it, it's not good. He goes to the Greeks, and it's a little different sometimes. You know, well, he, he has he has his run-ins, run-ins with pagans too. Sure. Um, well, some mock even now. Yeah, but... some mock even now. Slightly less violent, except for one instance. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians, <laughs> right? Exactly. It, it it just it's 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 just interesting, and we don't have a forum. We have tons of forums now, but not a forum quite like this. Sure. But anyway, now I'm just getting wistful. So let's uh... <laughs> let's just 
let me let me finish up a little bit here and then we'll we'll kind of talk about it in general because I have a couple points I want to make with it. Starting in the second half of verse 27, yet he is not he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. There's your Greek poet, Willie. There we are. And as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Yeah. Okay, that's the speech. The one thing I wanted to point out before we talk about your Greeks is that it's interesting that even though Paul begins with a fairly like philosophical-ish kind of argument, and he even kind of maybe has a semi-evidentialist kind of when he quotes the, the the Greeks, like, you know, you guys kind of think this way too. I think it's interesting that he doesn't end up in just like pure abstraction. He actually gets to a clear proclamation of the gospel, right. of calling to repentance and saying, repent, turn to God and live. Yeah, Paul certainly goes to the Areopagus with a purpose. And I don't think Paul, you know, after his conversion really ever speaks <laughs> without purpose. And this is a this is a shining example of that. You know, it's interesting. You can really kind of see how all three apologetical schools draw from the scriptures and draw from mm -hmm. their approaches. You have hints of the teleological argument here with this talk mm -hmm. of judgment and that sort of thing. Although, I mean, I'm really stretching that here. But, you know, you could say you have hints of that. Evidentialist, you know, you certainly see a little bit of that in there. And I, and I think you you certainly see hints of what would become presuppositionalism within Paul, but mostly in his epistle. Sure. So what is there to be gleaned from this? You said you had a couple points that you wanted to bring up. Oh, that, that was basically oh, Those were it. the points. Okay. You know, a couple things here, and I, and I think would help us. Paul is well-read, both in the scriptures, but also he knows his opponents well. I think that that's an invaluable tool when defending the faith. Mm -hmm. you, do need, you do need to know... Even though we would say that you assert truths over and above all things, you do need to know your opponent. It makes you look like a fool when you misrepresent your opponent. You should be able to argue your opponent's theological positions better than they can. That's the goal you should strive for. That's the beauty of Aquinas. You'll be reading through Aquinas and, you know, page after page after page <laughs> of him of him setting up the argument for the opponent. And halfway through it, you're going, I think I believe what the opponent does now but believes because he set up the argument so well and then he will then he will refute it of course when do we start our you know 50 long episode long on the uh, the summa that'll be a special that'll be a uh, that'll be a friday edition we'll just do that just just on just friday we're just going to go live fridays with st thomas <laughs> but yeah oh, i'm i'm joking yeah, but, but but yeah but yeah. but you should know that opponent, he, he knows what the Jews believe, too. And, he, and presumably, he, he understands, you know, what the pagans are doing in Corinth, for example. Uh, he's certainly aware of what the Judaizers are doing in Galatians. And, and so I think that's important. I, I, I'm not saying go and devote all your time to Mormon literature or anything like that, but do make an effort to understand what kind of arguments the enemies are making. Well, actually, and I think uh, maybe a good way to look at this, too, one of the, the clearest examples of this would be our own friends and family, right? Yeah. We aren't just talking at like our family or we're not just talking at our friends and just somehow giving them the magic bullet 
argument that's going to just convert them and now they're going to believe. No, we have to know what it is that they're dealing with. We have to deal with people where they are. Yeah. And that's really the whole point. When we know who our opponent is or when we know who this person that we are talking to is, we are then able to proclaim to them in their situation in concrete ways the saving gospel. With Paul, it's interesting that he does what he does affirm, and he affirms where he can't affirm. It's not all negative theology. I don't mean negative theology like apophatic theology. That's a different thing. But I mean, it's not just all criticism, you know, just sort of coming out immediately, all bluster. And you mm-hmm. tend to, that's what you tend to see at the family reunion, right? You got, sure. you got Baptist guy across from the potato salad from his nephew who converted to Catholicism, and they're just slinging mud the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> no, you don't want that. You know, is there is there is there a case to be made for levity in apologetics? I don't know that Paul necessarily has that here, but he certainly comes with what even though he's direct, there certainly seems to be an Irenic spirit here. Well, and and maybe and maybe this is where uh bringing in Peter would help. 1 Peter 3, which of course is kind of the verse par excellence for apologetics, you know, the hope that is within you. Peter actually is not talking about a strictly intellectual kind of thing, which I think is what we sometimes end up with. Peter is talking about through our conduct as Christians and through our arguments, so both and, not either or, both the way that we think and the way that we live as Christians is going to do much to proclaim the gospel. And so levity, yeah, sure. I mean, (laughs) we're being saved. Is that something that we're going to be depressed about? <laughs> God is in his heaven. Are we upset? Yeah, yeah. So there, there is joy in, in the Christian life, too. It's not all doom and gloom. It's not all anger and resentment towards everybody wrong out there. There's mm-hmm. also a great deal of joy in the Christian confession and in the knowledge of our sure and certain salvation in Christ Jesus. Yeah. Rejoice again, I will say rejoice. Right. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. All right. Well, we got to wrap things up here, Z. Any final words? I think if we're going to approach, as we continue to approach the subject of apologetics, I think it's important for people to realize that when we encourage you to do this, we are encouraging you to basically just to live out what it is that you believe. This isn't some special thing that you have to now tack on, you know, bolt on to your faith. This is just proclaiming to the world the hope that is within you. And to do that faithfully, to do that joyfully, and to be in the word as we do that will bring us increasing blessings. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. We also have a new discussion group for Word Fitly Spoken on Facebook. It is called Word Fitly Posting on Facebook. So just type it in your Facebook search bar there, Word fitly posting if you have questions you want to ask us or anything like that or join in the discussion thanks for listening i'm willie grills here with zell and heidi god love you and god bless